What do you say we play a little Bangkok rules? Hello, my name is Will and this is Exploding Helicopter, the first, the best, the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating films where helicopters explode. Escape from New York is considered one of John Carpenter's best films. Released in 1981, it was set in a dystopian future where the island of Manhattan had been turned into a giant lawless prison. The film starred Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken, a Maverick Special Forces soldier blackmailed into rescuing the president after his plane crashes in the jail. Fifteen years later, Carpenter finally returned to the character and made a sequel, Escape from L.A. But viewers expecting another lean, mean, sci-fi flavoured action film got a rude surprise. Rather than deliver another action classic, Carpenter seemed more interested in spoofing the genre and satirising 90s America. The movie left fans of the straggly-haired filmmaker puzzled and bemused. Considered a failure, it's seen as evidence of Carpenter's continuing decline. But is Escape from L.A. really that bad, or is it just misunderstood? That's the question we're going to be looking at on this show. And talking of people making disappointing return appearances, I'm joined once again by Nick Rehack from French Toast Sunday. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing well, Will. Thank you. I know your life as a as a movie critic has been on a on a downward spiral, much like uh, John Carpenter's career. But uh, you have to know that when you're guesting on the Exploding Helicopter podcast, that's when you really know you've hit rock bottom. I don't I don't look at it that way. I look at it as this nice, smooth helicopter ride down the descent. Well, I guess you could also you could also see it as if this is rock bottom, it's only up from here. So uh, every uh, every cloud has a silver lining and all that. Absolutely. So we're talking about a John Carpenter film on this show, and he's something of a cult movie maker. So uh, I, I wondered what your history was with his films and whether you'd consider yourself a fan. I'm a fan. Uh, I haven't seen all of his films, but I've definitely seen The Thing, uh, Salt on Precinct 13. I'm sure there's films that I've seen that I didn't realize were John Carpenter films until after the fact, but I'm I'm not against them. And uh, I think you saw Escape from New York a couple of years back for the first time. Is that right? Yes, I did. Yeah, I saw it about a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, the FTS gang got together. We sat and watched it. Really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, so what were your sort of expectations then coming in to uh, Escape from L.A.? I was kind of hoping for maybe more of the same from Escape from New York, but maybe amped up a little bit, like maybe the budget was a little bit bigger and they had a chance to do some bigger set pieces, bring in some, you know, bigger name stars. But that's not what we got. (laughs) Well, we will uh, get our teeth into uh, all of that very shortly. But first of all, I think it's time we get on with our mission. So let's listen to a few snippets of dialogue which provide a vague sense of the plot. Some people think you're already dead, Snake. Some say you never will be. Because you may have survived Cleveland. You may have escaped from New York, but this is L.A., Vato. And you're about to find out that this fucking city can kill anybody! That's Snake Plissken? What'd you expect? I don't know, he just looks so retro. 20th century. Good old days. This is serious. Black box is a matter of national security. Looks like it belongs to Utopia's lover boy now. Yeah. Want it back? I'll bet. Escape from LA is set in the year 2013, 
Now, in this alternate reality, America is beset by moral decay. So when a cataclysmic earthquake floods valleys around Los Angeles, turning it into an island, it's declared a punishment from God. In response to this disaster, a right-wing religious zealot has been elected president for life. He creates a new moral America where drinking, smoking, red meat, freedom of religion and extramarital sex are all banned. And Los Angeles is turned into a prison where undesirables and lawbreakers are sent. The main plot involves a satellite superweapon with which the president intends to take over the world. It's stolen by the president's daughter, who's in league with a revolutionary imprisoned in Los Angeles called Quavo Jones. He wants to use the device to lead the overthrow of the United States by a coalition of third world nations. So Snake Plissken is blackmailed into infiltrating LA with orders to recover the doomsday device. Uh, Escape from LA came out in 1996. It uh, once again stars Kurt Russell. Uh, along with him are Steve Buscemi, Peter Fonda, Stacey Keach and Bruce Campbell. It wasn't terribly well received on its release and film fans uh, haven't been much kinder. Film's got a middling 57% rating on IMDb while on Rotten Tomatoes the audience rating is down at 39%. But the film does have its defenders and I would declare myself one of them. But Nick, where do you fall on Escape from LA? Are you a hater or are you going to out yourself as a fan? Um, I think I'm leaning more towards the haters on this one. Uh, <laughs> I watched it and I, I emailed you while I was watching it. Just said this is a painful watch. Not a fan. I'm gonna. I've, it's clear I'm gonna have to muster some kind of defense for this film. But uh, I, I'm gonna nail my colors to the mast. I think this is as good as Escape from New York. It's a very different film to that uh, movie, but I think it, in its own right and within the parameters of what it's trying to do, I think this movie is, is just as good. I think it, it's goofy, it's gonzoid, but I think that's what it's aiming at, and I think that's what it succeeds at doing. Well, when I listened to your intro and how you talked about it's, you know, they're kind of spoofing themselves in a satire, that started to make a little bit more sense to me as I watched it, and Honestly, it's intriguing enough to hear your take on it to want to go back and rewatch it and see if, yes, maybe that's how it's supposed to be watched. But there's still a part of me that's like, yeah, but you have to sit through it again. And is it really worth that time and energy? Now, anyone who's watched Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. is going to sort of see how closely the two films mirror each other and a lot of the beats in the in the story uh, are pretty much the same so you've got an island as a prison there's a trial of strength uh, done as a sporting contest and there's a, a ticking clock plot device in the form of a poison that's injected into uh, Pliskin and one of the questions you sort of see asked by people is whether this is a sequel or whether it is just a remake where did you land on that particular question? It's a sequel in a sense. Um, I wouldn't consider it a remake unless it was the same plot, the same situation. It's a similar plot, sure, but it's definitely in a different – it's in Los Angeles. It's a different setting. It's different characters, and it's it's more of a continuing adventure of Snake Plissken. It's not necessarily a tried-and-true sequel where all of a sudden we're back to New York for some reason or – you know, there's many years have passed. So I think it's a little – it's a sequel, but it's not if that makes sense. Yeah, I would describe it as a, a sequel, yet it's not a sequel. Uh, and I think that it is a sequel for the reasons that you outlined in the sense that the passage of time between the two movies is, is reflected in the plot. Uh, whilst the, the plot beats are very similar, they are different, perhaps only very superficially different, but they are nevertheless different. But in in a sense, this isn't a sequel in the sense that I think it's actually attempting to do something completely different. And 
you know, I actually think that whilst uh, Escape from New York was a kind of straight up sci-fi action film, this is attempting to subvert the action genre. And, and I think that's particularly sort of interesting to look at because I think Carpenter throughout his career has never really got uh, involved in he's not really wanted to make sequels to his films and this is I think one of the few times that if only time he's actually made a sequel to one of his movies and I think the only reason that he ultimately made this film is because in his mind he's doing something completely different and he is basically making something which is satirizing America it's subverting the action genre it is something that is goofy and gonzoid in a way in which Escape from New York just didn't have any of those particular elements so it is a sequel for me but equally it is not a sequel it's you you could almost this could almost be a standalone film so then the question has to be asked do you think it was released too soon then do you think audiences weren't smart enough to see that or is there a few out there that were able to or maybe that's that was his intent his intent was to see how many people will actually get it or how many people would cast it off I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult one. I did wonder if this film would have been better received if he'd made it a couple of years after Escape from New York. For me, I just think audience expectation got in the way of people really understanding what I think Carpenter was trying to do with this film. I think 15 years passed by, Escape from New York, you know, grew up uh, as a kind of cult movie over those over that particular time. And so I think when people, when he said he was going to be sort of returning to this character, I, I think people just thought, oh, wow, and their imaginations ran riot with the type of film that they thought they were going to get. And then when Carpenter delivered something that wasn't in line with those expectations, I think people just couldn't really get over that mental leap in their mind about what they wanted versus what Carpenter wants to do as the you know creative mastermind of this project. Yeah, I would, that's, that's kind of I think it's where I would fall if I had your understanding of it and kind of your viewpoint. But the way I see it is just, I think it didn't do that well. And then he tried to sweep it up as like, oh, I was trying to do this thing. And it just didn't. (laughs) Or maybe I'm not giving him enough credit. I'm just being a a downer about it. Well, let's talk about how Escape from LA is different to uh, Escape from uh, New York. And as we've already sort of said, one is a sort of straightforward sci-fi adventure. uh, Whereas in Escape from LA, there is much more sort of tongue-in-cheek feel and Carpenter seems to be much more interested in satirizing Hollywood and American culture than in delivering uh, an action movie. So underlying this film is an imagined future where America's Catholic Puritanism has seen racial and ethnic minorities outlawed. Any kind of personal vice like alcohol or cigarettes are banned. There's also some cultural critiques there. So there's a sequence where a snake is captured by a group of mutants who've become deformed by constant plastic surgery. Uh, Hippie culture also comes in for a bit of flack i mean nick what did you make of these elements of the film how well do you think carpenter's jabs landed i think it was very spooky uh watching the beginning of it and said the year is 2013 i'm like you could have said the year is 2017 and i would have went uh john you nailed it um (laughs) at least here in the states like it's it's so creepy how very quickly we could become just like it is in escape from la uh, I thought that I, I thought that was very fascinating, and I wonder what kind of um, response he got at the time this was released. If people were feeling that way, or if they said, "Oh, it's ridiculous to think that," or "Oh, it's going to get better," because I don't think it has. <laughs> Truthfully, I think we're headed right in the direction that he said we are. Yeah, I mean, there are uh, a lot of uh, elements in this film which have taken on uh, new 
uh, resonance uh, with the uh, election of Donald Trump. So underpinning this film is uh, a fear that uh, America is uh, going to be invaded by Mexicans and Cubans. Being a Muslim has been uh, made a criminal offence uh, in America. And yeah, looking back a few years, this this film might have seemed slightly preposterous. But uh, as you're saying, in the last uh, year or two, it seems to have taken on uh, a sort of whole fresh new current perspective. Yeah, especially when it's the president's daughter that kind of ran off with this device and now she's with somebody else. I mean, the relationship that our current president has with his daughter, it's... It's disgusting, but it's also like very eerily similar to what's going on here. So, We should talk about a couple of uh, particular scenes in this movie. And uh, there is one infamous scene in this film which sees Kurt Russell and uh, Peter Fonda surfing alongside a coastline highway. <laughs> and uh, as they are surfing along here, this allows... Uh, Kurt Russell to uh, leap from his uh, surfboard into a car driven by Steve Buscemi. And I think that for me is the key moment of the film. That's the it's the moment where if you don't like the film, it's the moment where the film jumps the shark or in this film, I guess, jumps the surfboard. Or if you're on board with the film, you think, yes, I know exactly what this film is all about. And uh, yeah. I heard you mutter under your breath there, so I think I, I've got an impression of what you made of that scene. I I was not a fan. I'm watching this happen, and I'm like, there's no way he's going to – and then he does it, and I'm just like, well, that's that's this movie now. Now I know where we're at and where we're headed, so just going to have to grin and bear the rest of it. I mean maybe it was the mood I was in, and I didn't catch on to – you know, it's supposed to be kind of this absurd and goofiness, but I, as soon as that scene happened, I'm I, – I just kind of looked at the screen and went, F- you. You know what? F- you for doing this to me. <laughs> like, there's no way a surfboard and the surf is going to outrun a car. Or it's going to c- c- retain that type of – the physics to me don't make sense and it doesn't add up. And I know there's a lot of things that don't add up and make sense. Logic is not the name of the game in this movie. But there's still part of me that's like, how is he – and then to have the – to be able to leap. And make that jump. If you're going to be pushing down on a surfboard, the water is not a hard surface. The board's going to go down into the water. You're not going to have the trajectory or the spring you think you're going to have. I, I guess when I see something again, I just rather than go, oh, hey, logic's not making sense here. I just kind of look for all the logic I can, and it just falls apart. Well, that saddens me, uh, saddens me greatly. I mean, I, I find it hard, given everything else that you'd watched up until this this point. Uh, I, I find it a bit odd that you, you really the the whole surfboard thing is the is the bit that really gets you. I mean, it's not like this this film has been a uh, a kind of uh, you know has has been documentary realism up until this point. Right, and see that's the thing. I go ruin it for myself. I I'm I, I'm watching it and I'm like, man, the dialogue's kind of shitty and and okay, I can kind of get past this, but and all of a sudden that shows up and I'm just like, no, get out of here. <laughs> I I just I ruin it for myself. And then the fact that they're going after Steve Buscemi's character, whose name is literally mapped to the stars Eddie. It's not he could have been Eddie Star or Eddie, you know, something or other, but mapped to the stars Eddie. And that's how he refers to himself every time you see him. Not Eddie, mapped to the stars Eddie. Yeah, and I think that is sort of going back to uh, the point I was making about this film, just not its 
satirical elements are just not quite as uh, as sharp as they uh, necessarily need to be i think for this film to be an absolute bona fide success but the budget for this film was about 50 million dollars which i think what it, yeah i think it was the biggest of carpenter's career and if you look at uh, some of the other films that came out in the same year as escape from la uh, independence day came out in the same year obviously a big budget blockbuster that had a budget of 75 million dollars so escape from la 50 million dollars so you know they're in you know they shows you that this it, uh, you know, Carpenter had a decidedly healthy budget to work with on this film. So I guess I wondered what you thought of the of the world building that Carpenter had done here and, with you know, with the budget that he had to play with. I, now that I know that number, I felt it could have been stronger. They could have splurged a little bit more on, on the little things to really make the world seem bigger and, and more detailed. I, I liked... I liked how, you know, it's just very dark for the most part. Um, I mean, practically the whole film t- takes place at night, so of course it's going to be dark. But just the overall feeling how it's kind of turned into this, like, desert camp town, Burning Man kind of thing. But then when you get to the arena, when they're at the stadium, and it's practically empty, mm. that kind of that kind of kills it. But with this budget, you couldn't afford to rent that place out and just cram it with people left and right and just have them go nuts and have what happens next on like a grand huge like gladiator type scale like to me that would have sold it and that would have been like okay yeah we see the desert outreach and everything is so poor oh because it's a third world country now because everything is being spent on the capital and it's big you know games and that's where we are here when we go to uh the stadium and the uh, that we go to that would have really i think sold it and made up for some of its other shortcomings but when all of a sudden they go walking in i'm like well what's What's going on here? And but then again, who knows? Maybe within the story, there's not enough criminals and and uh, bad hombres, if you will, in order to fill this place. But then part of me feels like no, there should be, and there would be. No, I'm definitely in your camp. That stadium scene does feel woefully underdressed. You know, you do look at that scene and you and you you look at the budget of this movie and you do think, well, where where did the money go if um, yeah. they can't even get you know, enough extras in to make that particular scene. And I think that would have really, that really would have helped that particular scene. It really would have helped build up Quavo Jones as the, the villain in this piece. If absolutely. that stadium was absolutely packed and people are there to see all these sort of gladiatorial battles that are taking place. And yeah, you just look at sort of all these people fighting each other in not even a half empty stadium. It's, it's not even, it's like a tenth full you know, he doesn't look like a, a man of power. Quavo Jones doesn't look like a man of power at that moment. He looks like, you know, some fringe character. Yeah, and to the point where all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you know, like you said, Quavo Jones is supposed to be this big bad guy. Now I'm just like, I don't care about this guy. He just seems like some mid-level punk. Who's the guy that's really running things here? Although I, I have to say, I did one element of the world building did uh, <laughs> kind of uh, amuse me, uh, but also a bit disappointed me because I just, you know, what is it about the dystopian futures that sort of punk never really seems to go out of fashion? I don't know what it is. You just see it in film after film and uh, invariably, you know, looking like a punk or some kind of 80s hair metal band is invariably sort of the the style that uh, post-apocalyptic human beings seem to revert to. I don't really understand why that's the one they zero in on. Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think with punk and and here we are or here I am about to be really stereotypical with <laughs> punk, you're always wearing these like Doc Martin-esque boots, right? Like these thick industrial style boots. Well, that's going to help you in the post-apocalyptic world. It's going to help you with if you have to do any hiking, if you got to do some 
kicking here and there. I think everything is on a practical multi-use basis when they have those like jean jackets with all the different pockets and pouches you can store stuff in there whether it be little treats or weaponry or tools when it comes to piercings and stuff you can take those out and like stab people with them or if you need to like cut things up like i think it's truly just multi-use and practicality coming into play well if i do think that uh, the end of the world is coming then uh, i'm gonna get down my uh, i'm gonna get down my local goth punk emporium and uh, get myself kitted out for the uh, future yeah just gotta hit up a hot topic (laughs) now i've got a question here about the actors in this film but does anyone really stand out for you here i mean i'm i was sort of struggling myself with this question so uh yeah i mean i don't think anyone really does in this movie for me pam greer showing up was kind of weird and unexpected um and what was with the dubbing though of her voice Here's the weirdest thing. I kind of liked it. I, as as bizarre as it was, I was like, okay, I get it. Obviously, he used to be running with this guy named Hirsch, maybe Herschel, and now he's in a transition, and it's now Hershey, which is kind of funny because Hershey, it's kind of like a, a, a transgender joke-esque mm. or like play on that, if you will, instead of like – he, she, which may be offensive. I hope that's not offensive to anybody. But um, I thought I just thought that was like a really interesting character, like pop up out of nowhere and then finally explain kind of what happened in Cleveland. And then I, I, I guess outside of Snake, uh, Steve Buscemi's character, just kind of like a greaseball, like grimy kind of bottom feeder guy. Those are the only two that really stick out. Every every other character just seems expendable to me, even when you have, like, you know, the commander and the president doing their thing. Like, there's no real power or presence. Like, when I see the guy's president, I'm just like, I don't I don't care about this guy. I don't even care about his daughter. Like, why? Yeah. It, it feels like they could have spent that money because they clearly didn't spend it on extras or special effects. They could have spent it on some bigger names than what they got. Not that Pam Greer or Bruce Campbell's not a good get. That's fine. But, you know, someone maybe like a, a Charlton Heston as the president or or something even a pat boone as the president that would have been hilarious <laughs> now escape from la has a pretty terrible reputation in the carpenter canon have i done anything today to change your opinion that that is a reputation that the film doesn't deserve or are you going to kind of stick with your somewhat disappointed uh, opinion about the film I think I'm going to stick with the disappointed opinion for a little bit, but I think eventually I'm going to rewatch the film, maybe do a double feature, Escape from New York and then L.A., but when I go to watch L.A., have it with the renewed sense that you've given me that it's kind of an anti-action film, not anti, but the antithesis of an, an of an action film, plus with the satire and absurdity thrown in, I think I would appreciate it a little bit more for what it is. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest you do a slightly different double bill. So okay. I'm going to say that you watch Escape from L.A. and then you watch it alongside Machete or Machete Kills. Ooh. Because I think that, you know, if Robert Rodriguez had made this film, people would not have a problem with it. And I, I think, you know, if you look at what Robert Rodriguez is doing with those films, it's basically what John Carpenter is doing with Escape from L.A. Hmm. You know, now that I sit here and think about it, I think you're right. If you can uh, summon the enthusiasm for a rewatch, that is the uh, double bill I would uh, suggest. But uh, there is a there's an element of this film that really bemuses me. I don't know if you noticed it. There is a scene in this film where where Snake is captured by uh, Quavo Jones and he's 
starts to make this broadcast to uh, America about what his plans are. And Snake is kind of tied up in the background and he's tied up on an exercise machine, Mm -hmm. which then one of the goons of Quavo Jones turns on. And so you just see sort of Snake just sort of marching away on this uh, exercise machine. And I really didn't understand why that was why anyone bothered to include that in the film. And I don't know if, <laughs> if you noticed it and if you can think of a reason for it. I thought it was the weirdest thing. I'm watching. I'm like, why did they have him on a treadmill in the background? I'm like, yeah, it could be to signify he's still alive to other people, but they could have had him like hanging by chains in the back. Clearly, they still have power, so it's not like he needs to run on the treadmill to generate power like a gerbil. Like I, 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 I truly didn't understand what it was for. Maybe to like tire him out so he wouldn't have as much energy for when he goes to play basketball later, which is absolutely ridiculous. There's plenty of reasons, but none of them make sense. And they don't have to make sense because this film does not pay attention to logic. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be casting a critical eye over the exploding helicopter action. I'm Clint. And I'm Jared. And we're the hosts of the podcast, Alcoholywood. Your source for inebriation, which you're not listening to right now, because this is just a promo for a weekly podcast on all kinds of movies. New, old, good, bad. Yeah, especially bad. Plus, we invent a cocktail and a drinking game inspired by each film. And sometimes we make jokes. Not this time, but sometimes. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher and check out the whole shebang at alcoholywood.com. We're back, and now we're going to be talking about the film's key scene, The Exploding Helicopter. This happens towards the end of the film. The villain, Quavo Jones, has blackmailed the American government into sending a helicopter into L.A., in which he plans to escape. Russell and some newly acquired allies arrive in hang gliders, and there's a big shootout. Kurt hijacks the chopper to make his own getaway, prompting Jones to fire a rocket launcher at the helicopter. The whirlybird is hit and badly damaged. Our mulleted hero is still able to fly the aircraft out of the prison, but unable to land the chopper safely, Russell bails out at the last moment. The chopper crashes into the ground and explodes in a massive fireball. Nick, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action in Escape from L.A.? I was a little disappointed and a little underwhelmed by the explosion. I think what bothered me the most was the helicopter itself. I thought the design was really cool, like a semi-futuristic looking thing. But as fast as the propellers went, that was one of the slowest helicopters I've ever seen. The ascent it makes to get out of the (laughs) area in which they hang glided into. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, why is it taking so long? And then the fact that it's so slow that he's able to get a rocket off, it, it why it didn't explode immediately, I guess because it's, again, a futuristic and maybe it's has a better chance of withstanding those kind of attacks. But for it to explode on the ground, to me, seems a little underwhelming and cheap. When you think of an exploding helicopter, you think of one that's exploding midair or, you know, something like that, not not on the ground taking the easy way out well in the scene's defense it is a massive fireball that we get there's they don't they don't stint on the uh, the pyrotechnics oh no I, I totally agree the the huge fireball and that's probably the best part about it and the only good thing about it but everything else just seems like the rest of the film kind of underwhelming and 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 like it missed the mark to me at least well i think you've already sort of touched a little bit on uh, on this particular issue but uh, the special effects in this sequence are noticeably bad, but 
I don't know, for 1996, some of the, 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 you know, there's a use of a, of a, of a model on a, on a crane in part of this sequence. Then there is, I don't know what, something that looks like some sort of composite image being slid across a, some back projection. It's, it's a weird mishmash of, of stuff here and none of it looks too good. It's very mishmashy and it almost has like a, a 50s or a 60s feel. The way it's almost like here's the image, and then like you said, we're going to composite like this painted matte glass image next to it, or we're only going to film so much, and then we're just going to have to color in the lines on the rest of the film before we submit the final print. And and then just the way the propeller speeds up so fast, like I said, when it starts, like they could have filmed that a number of ways to get the desired effect. They didn't have to like pencil in this effect that just kind of makes the whole thing seem, for lack of a better word, cheesy. Did we see anything here that was different or unique in the exploding helicopter cannon? Outside of the helicopter design, um, I don't think so. I, I, As many episodes as I listen to of this podcast, I think this is the first one where the helicopter is not exploding in the air. I think this is the first one we've covered – or where you've covered, excuse me, where it uh, it explodes as it hits the ground. Um. My terrible memory uh, uh, stops me from uh, recalling. I'm just gonna look, I'm just gonna look this up for uh, definitive. Uh... Well, I have quickly just uh, looked up at some of the uh, old exploding helicopter podcast episodes, and there are a couple that we're, where we've seen uh, this happen. So X Men Origins. The helicopter is on the oh, ground yeah, when it explodes, yeah, yeah. but that is there's a delay there. It's crashed, and then obviously uh, Hugh Jackman sets fire to it. A better example might be a cliffhanger. So as the uh, the helicopter is stuck on the side of the mountain, falls down to the ground, and then when it impacts the ground, that's when it explodes. So that's probably a gotcha. better that's probably a better analogy. So it is something that we have seen before. So yeah, we can't add that as a, as a unique uh, element, I'm afraid. So uh, yeah, Fair it's going to have to stay as a slightly underwhelming exploding helicopter scene. Right. Well, I think it is time to uh, shut this podcast down. Nick, thanks for uh, talking about escape from LA with me. Do you want to take uh, a moment to tell people where they can find your stuff online? Absolutely. You can find myself and the rest of the French Toast Sunday crew over at FrenchToastSunday.com or on Twitter at FTS Tweets. Uh, we're in the middle of a hiatus right now. Uh, some of our members are buying houses, moving into houses, getting ready to ramp back up to go to school. So once we get that scheduled and our schedule's in line, uh, we'll be back to producing more content more frequently. Uh, so yeah, give us a, give us a shout. Check out some older episodes while you're on there too. I'd uh, also recommend, really recommend, checking out the Exploding Helicopter website. I've been doing some uh, new reviews over there. I even put jokes every three lines, so your social media damaged minds should be able to cope with uh, actual written words. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those Exploding Helicopters.
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. She didn't know that she had that remote unit in her pocket now, did she? I was wondering what kind of lame switch you tried to pull this time, Plitzkin. You know, you're becoming very predictable. Yeah, I guess so. You gotta smoke. The United States is a no-smoking nation. No smoking, no drinking, no drugs, no women. Unless, of course, you're married. No guns, no foul language, no red meat. Land of the free. 